Welcome back to the room where it happened. This is room number nine. It's been almost a year, so we've managed to get almost to double digits, so we're making progress here. And I'm excited about uh, recording this episode and the folks that I can see on my screen in front of you. You'll just have to listen to us, but I'm excited about it. And just before we get started here, we're going to go to France for this room. And this room is going to be in some ways ironic because it's the second time we're going to a Jefferson dinner party. <laughs> in room number one, uh, we went to uh, a dinner party hosted in uh, New York by Jefferson. Uh, particularly there, it was the, as we talked about in, in, in room number one, it was about uh, the, the compromise that was struck over the location of the Capitol and, and Hamilton getting what he wanted in terms of, uh, uh, of a national bank and, and the national financial system and the assumption of debts. So uh, it seemed time that it was appropriate to come back around and, and go to dinner with Jefferson again, although it's not just with Jefferson. And we'll talk about that as we work through the episode here. And the impetus for this episode, as we've talked about leading up to this on both podcasts, particularly on the working time, is we're joined by our usual crew. So let me introduce who, who is here from the usual crew today. That's Alexis and myself. We also have Chris Capola and Eric Bond. So we have one half of our Eric and Eric combination. So I'll let everybody really quick, starting with Lex, say hi. Chris, say hi. No, Eric says hi. And then Chris, we're going to let you do what you normally do. But Eric, if you'll say good hi, hi to the good listeners. Hello, good listeners, to my first time on The Room Where It Happened. That's true. I realize that, Eric, because I was looking at, at the graph there. Alexis is on a brand new computer, so it's crisp and clear sound and video-wise. So how are you doing tonight, Lex? Except if I keep muting my, my mic, it's because I've got two rambunctious dogs. So I'm going to do my best to to minimize the barking because of course they haven't barked all afternoon, but now they want to. Now they want to bark. That's the way it works. That's why if you go to the web, if you go to the website, one of those two dogs, Madison, is the, uh, is a show mascot because she would tend to interrupt when Alexis and I were recording here at my house. And last, but certainly not least, there's a podcast agitator and all kinds of other titles that we've assigned to him. Chris Capola, Chris, say good, say hi to the good people. Hi to the good people. There we go. Now it now it feels like now it feels like an episode. The person that I didn't mention though that I can see on my screen, we're very excited to have is Dr. Bo Breslin, and uh, Bo uh, reached out like a lot of folks did, suggesting a topic or giving us feedback, and that's how we came to know a lot of the folks that I see on the screen here now. But what makes Bo a little bit different? Uh, he's a published author, and uh, and, and a college professor uh, at Skidmore. And uh, Bo, you have, I think you have a fascinating thing. I'm going to let you explain your book and explain the premise of that and why we're in France, where we are at Jefferson's dinner party, because it's actually how you more or less start your book as well. So it seemed like an important and appropriate way for us to start here. Uh, so a uh, room where it happened and ultimately a fork in time uh, welcomes Bo Breslin. Bo, good to have you. Oh, Don, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Uh, I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time, uh, both podcasts, and so uh, it's a real honor to be here. So um, the premise of my book, uh, it's called The Constitution for the Living. Um, and the premise of the book is uh, pretty simple. Um, there's a famous debate between Jefferson and Madison. Uh, Madison is in Philadelphia in 1787. He is the primary crafter, drafter of the Constitution. He finishes up his work with the other, eventually 38 folks who signed the Constitution, and he ships it off to Jefferson to get Jefferson's response, right? And they, uh, Madison and Jefferson engage in a conversation, Madison here in Virginia, Jefferson in, in Paris, 
about the merits of the Constitution. And uh, Madison asks Jefferson, sort of his mentor, um, what he thinks. And Jefferson writes back uh, and says, uh, I like certain things about the Constitution. I like this and that. But there's one thing that bothers me about the Constitution, and that is there's no sunset clause. And what he really meant by that was he thought that each generation ought to write its own Constitution. And uh, he goes into great detail about the fact that it's just another form of tyranny for uh, a people, a current people, to be governed by a constitution written by a previous generation or a, a long ago generation. And so for him, uh, it was problematic to have a constitution that didn't have a sunset clause. For him, that meant every 19 years, he has this mathematical formula where he thinks every generation turns over 19 years. So he says to Madison, uh, the earth belongs to the living, right? That's his famous phrase. And by that, he meant the constitution ought to be written, rewritten every 19 years. I took that simple debate, Don, and I, I simply imagined what it would be like if we lived in a Jeffersonian world. What would those constitutions have looked like in American history? And though every 19 years is a little indulgent, there's not much happening in uh, lots of those 19 years, I took the spirit of Jefferson's work and based it, uh, imagined uh, a Jeffersonian world in which a constitution was written based on the life expectancy of uh, American citizens at the time. So in 1787, the life expectancy of the average American male was 38 years, which puts us at 1825. That life expectancy doesn't change. Uh, in 1825. So the next constitutional convention is 1863. Interestingly enough, right in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, then the, the life expectancy of Americans changes a little bit. It expands a little bit to 40 years. So my next one is 1903. 1953 is the fourth. And then 2022, because the life expectancy of the average American in 1953 was 69 years. So uh, I simply, I'll finish here, but I simply uh, imagined what those constitutional conventions would have looked like. And I put players who no doubt would have been at that, those conventions in, uh, in Philadelphia. And we imagined what the constitutions would have looked like if Jefferson had won that debate and we lived in a Jeffersonian world. Yeah, I, I think that's a great summary, Bo, and I, I've enjoyed reading the book. And actually, the, the thing you said there, I think, at the very end, also just popped in my head as being relevant. Um, we see it as a document. We see it as a living document, all the things that we do. But it very much was driven by the people that were in the room, right? Yep. And yep. in this case, Jefferson is not in the room, so he's not driving that directly. He really doesn't have a chance. And given the nature of how long it took correspondence to move back and forth, you know, it, it he, he couldn't SMS, I am, you know, do the types of things today, you know, pop on a Zoom call like we are here recording to be able to do that, which really limited his ability to do so. But one of the things I enjoyed about the book was that you brought perspective to them, to the to the subsequent conventions, the five conventions that you imagine. You brought it through the through the eyes of individuals that would have been part there, as you just described, versus just describing, well, here's the lay of the land and here's right. what the topics would have been. You, you, met, you humanized and personalized them to a degree by the people that were there. And I think it, 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 first of all, it makes it much more engaged, 
be able to be engaged by a reader, I think, because of that, which I think was your primary reason for doing it. But it's also the the, the reminder it was to me of the people that were there mattered and the influence of the people that were there also matters. Is that a fair summary of sort of what was going through your head when you chose that approach? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 1825, Daniel Webster would have been a major player in that Constitutional Convention. And there's no question he he would have been there. He would not have skipped it. And he had a lot of influence. You know, was he Madison? Maybe not not Madison, but um, he would have had an enormous amount of influence. In 1953, Thurgood Marshall would have been uh, at that Constitutional Convention. Right. So uh, the players make all the difference. Uh, who gets around the table? I'm always struck by. Uh, you know, we haven't obviously haven't had a constitutional convention in over 200 years, over two centuries. But think of South Africa, right? South Africa had a constitutional convention in the early 90s. And the fundamental question, Don, was who's going to be around the table? That makes all the difference. If we had a constitutional convention today, the what would make all the difference is who gets invited to be around the table. And that would be incredibly contentious in this very polarized environment. But the people make all the difference. Uh, it's, not, it's not the clauses. It's not the provisions. It's the people who are invited to that conversation. Yeah. I, I, the other thing I wanted to, I have a degree in political science. I don't yeah. exercise that degree, Bo, so <laughs> on a regular basis. So I remember what I remember and I know what I know. But the other thing that uh, it caused me to do this afternoon was going back and saying, um, you know, how novel was the concept of a written constitution? The American the American constitution is not the first written constitution. Again, depending on how you choose to define it is also yeah. part, part of what comes into play there. But I, I had the privilege when I was an undergraduate, took a class in constitutional design. And, and, and the exercise that we did was we actually uh, studied a mythical island nation in the Pacific that was roughly modeled after uh, the Solomon Islands in a lot of ways. And then we had to draft a constitution for them. And ultimately the last part of that, it was actually a massive four part paper. The first part was like an analysis of the situation. The second part was like you laying out the fundamentals of how you thought the, a, a written constitution would resolve. The third was the document itself. And then we had to write our version of the Federalist Papers as the fourth part to defend and advocate for it. A class I enjoyed tremendously. I'm actually looking over here at the bookcase beside me. I still have the binder that has all of that fun stuff in it. I will let awesome. that go. But what I remember there is one of the things, and this this is how it ties back around to the question I was going to ask. That's not just a trip. It is a trip down memory lane for me, but it's not only for that purpose, is that one of the things that we studied were other documents that had come before right. the American Constitution. You know, things like the Mayflower Compact being an example of this, that were this idea of we're going to put a fundamental agreement in writing was both not new and new at the same time. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, so first of all, uh, I'm, I'm super excited about that class, right? I, I wanna see that syllabus, that looks phenomenal. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's pure constitutional theory, which I'm just thrilled about. Um, so the answer is yes. And this is what I say to my students, Donna, and that is um, our constitution, warts and all, changed the world, right? Uh, and sure, there was Magna Carta, there's, there's, there's documents that were written beforehand, 
but none had the full uh, the full effect um, or the entirety of our constitution. Um, and so uh, our constitution is the most enduring national constitution uh, currently written, right? It's the first written national constitution in fully uh, in its full form. Only three countries of the world have not followed the U.S.'s example of a written constitution. And there are reasons for them, right? The UK is one of them. New Zealand is another as a colonial power, uh, as a colonial uh, outlay. And Israel, right? Israel cannot afford to have a written constitution because it cannot afford to write down the rules of the game for a Jewish state prior to the game starting. And that's what a constitution does. So, um, so uh, but prior to 1787, there were no written constitutions outside of the state constitutions in the full form. Uh, Mayflower Compact has certain pieces of it. Magna Carta has certain pieces of it. But our constitution changed the world because it ultimately uh, led to, to countries, you know, arriving on the, on the international scene by writing a constitution and stating their claim to that. I've sort of dominated the questioning here, so I'm going to throw it open to the team of the panel. They're not just here to be pretty faces on the screen for me. They're here to, to engage. Does anybody have anything along those lines that they want to throw out as a question to Bo or a topic that they wanted him to sort of address in this sort of introductory phase? I'm kind of interested in the idea of the constitutional project as an outgrowth of the enlightenment and this idea that we can distill natural and human laws and relationships into understandable principles. And, and, and it feels like that's very much where this comes from. And almost the United States got lucky being the first because there were it in that those enlightenment ideas, man, maybe the, you know, I know the, the United States really helped cause the French one, the, right. the, the revolution, all of that. But just talk a little bit about that idea and also the ideas of how many of these people are mathematicians, are agronomists, are amateur physicists, all of this. Yeah. So, Chris, the, um, uh, that's a great question. And uh, when, I, when I think about I'll, I'll, I'll take the first part of your question this way. When I think about the Enlightenment, I think often, and, and its relation to the Constitution, I think often of Hamilton's Federalist One, right? Nobody pays any attention to Federalist One. Everybody's paying attention to Federalist 10 and Federalist 51 and, you know, these really famous Federalist 78, these really famous Federalist papers. But there's no more important Federalist paper than Federalist One because Hamilton comes out and says, uh, he in the first paragraph, he asks the fundamental question, right? Whether men are capable of establishing good government from reflection and choice, right? These enlightenment ideas of reason uh, or whether they're forever destined to uh, get their constitutions from accident and force, right? So that's the first paragraph of the Federalist Papers and Hamilton literally states this underlying enlightenment principle that can we sit around a table and rationalize about what a government should look like and form the polity through the written word, 
by based on reason of those people around the table. It's an amazing uh, moment in human history when, uh, when Hamilton asked that question in Federalist One. And you're absolutely right. Our constitution is a reflection of the, of the enlightenment. And yeah, we just happen to be first. We, we, we beat the French by a little bit, right? But uh, ultimately it did uh, fundamentally change the world. So, so uh, your question about the enlightenment, your ideas about the enlightenment absolutely informed uh, the constitution. And Hamilton depicts that in Federalist One. And, and to Chris's second point there, Bo, about the diversity of the participants being, well, you know, today we would probably bring a lot of uh, government people per se. Right, right, right. You, you know, that that, did, yeah. that sort of existed, obviously, right. but didn't exist th right. that in, in that constitution, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of them were uh, astute political thinkers, right? Even if they weren't purely politicians at the time, um, a lot of them were purely politicians at the time. But one of the things about the founding generation is that they, uh, they were experts often in multiple things, right? So John Dickinson, for example, is uh, a lawyer and a physician at the same time, right? He's, he's able to think beyond just the narrow parochial stuff that we're used to nowadays. Um, we've, we've lost that, right? And one of the things that I think about when I think about uh, constitutions written throughout American history, especially today, is again, who do, you put a, who do you put around the table? I think you put citizens like this, like the six of us, uh, the five of us around this and uh, this podcast. I don't think you put politicians in, in the room. Sure, you might have some, but ultimately let's, Let's have a citizen-driven uh, constitutional convention. Um, uh, you know, at the time, it, with these were prominent people. They were wealthy people. They wanted to maintain their wealth. There's no question about it. Um, they established a system of government that would uh, maintain their elite status. Um, but uh, today, it'd be, it would be interesting to think about uh, not having... Uh, elected politicians in a constitutional convention. I do think you need judges and I do think you need um, somebody with some expertise, but how about just regular citizens who are either voted in or randomly put on uh, around the table? That would be an interesting constitutional convention. Uh, so, so instead of jury duty, you get your constitutional convention <laughs> summons <laughs> and then people are trying to, to weasel their way out of that the way that, that right. they do out of jury duty per se. Don, how much time have you spent in Philadelphia? Uh, I can understand trying to get out of it. <laughs> Make, makes a little sense. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to ask Bill about, and then I wanted to actually go back to the, the premise here, the start of Jefferson's yeah. dinner party in Paris, because I think that that brings it back to full circle there, uh, is the other thing that strikes me about the U.S. Constitution is in some ways it's a renegade document. That's why you have to have the Federalist Papers come along and Ooh, defend it yeah. for ratification, because <laughs> Their stated purpose, well, we're going to get everybody together to fix this thing we've already got called the right. Articles of Confederation that's not quite not quite doing what it needs to do. So do you have any thoughts just on, you know, helping us better understand? Did mo I guess this has always been a question for me when I've studied it. Most of the delegates that went to the Constitutional Convention sort of know, yeah, that's probably what we're going to have to do when we get there. Or was that actually sort of the first 
we, uh, Chris raised a great question about, you know, this idea of can you even do this? But was 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 that as radical as I think that it is in my head? Or was that sort of, yeah, we know that's what we're going to have to do when we get there? Or was it a mixture of the two? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful question. And, uh, it, you know, you're you're uh, super knowledgeable and astute about this kind of stuff, Don. So uh, what I tell my students is the most revolutionary moment in American history is the moment in, in early in the Constitutional Convention when the delegates decided to scrap the Articles of Confederation. The most revolutionary moment in American history is not the American Revolution. It's the moment in which uh, the groups decided to scrap it. Because, of course, they didn't have, that was not their mission, right? That was not their marching orders from the various states. They were told to go and tinker with the Articles of Confederation. And what the brilliance of Madison, so a couple, we think about Madison um, in so many different ways, but the brilliance of Madison um, was also his, uh, his acute strategy, right? He comes to Philadelphia with an already worked out constitutional document, it's called the Virginia Plan, and he throws it on the table basically in late May, day one, you know, metaphorically day one throws it on the table. Well, of course, he, he had figured out that if you throw a document on the table that uh, looks like a new constitution, the conversation becomes about that constitution, right? So Madison understood uh, that if he could get ahead of the game by crafting or drafting a constitution in kind of a slightly different form and throwing it on the table, the entire convention would be devoted to thinking about tinkering with his text as opposed to the Articles of Confederation. So yeah, totally radical. As I recall correctly, if I remember my history correctly, they also agreed that they would keep what they were doing a secret until oh, they were absolutely. done, which also sort of immediately indicates, you know, maybe maybe we're being subversive here. We're not supposed to do that if we're not going to be telling anybody, right? And uh, I'm, I'm amazed that, that let, by the way, there's a lesson to be learned from what Madison did there when I worked for an attorney as an undergraduate. Yeah. He always used to like to be the one that would draft the final decrees, the final orders. Yeah. And it was, I would rather they be editing my version, which yeah. I know what's in there, including the things they might not catch that are not overtly um, against what the judge ordered. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to claim the I'm going to claim the ambiguity areas for yeah. the benefit of my client. And, you know, part of what also worked there, I learned that lesson, I've actually used that lesson through a lot of my my uh, my work career, is that it also relies upon the laziness of others, because it's like, well, you, you drafted yours, now I don't have to draft mine, so yeah, we'll discuss editing yours versus, you know, me having to spend the time to come whole cloth, so Madison deserves the, uh, you know, deserves, deserves the win to some degree because he was willing to put in the effort, right? Yeah, and uh, absolutely true, and and mentioning the, the, the secrecy component, right? That you, you cannot overstate how important it was that they, uh, they kept secret, um, they kept quiet about these things. And the amazing thing, even in 1787, was that they held true to, to that commitment to each other. Um, one of the things that's, uh, I'll just mention, one of the things that was super fun about writing the book is thinking about these sorts of things, right? So at what point is it 1825? Is it 1863? Is it 1903? 
would it, would it become impossible to keep it secret, right? And I had to imagine, oh, okay, well, it was this year. It was, you know, 1863 that uh, they decide not to do it. Um, you know, so there were, there were cool things like that, right? Remember the original Constitutional Convention, uh, they voted as states, right? They weren't individual votes, right? They got together and they voted as states. So, you know, you, if you got seven states, you were going to win a majority. Um, it wasn't an individual vote. At what point did they change that? Because, of course, we would never vote by states now. Um, so those sorts of things developing and evolving over history and secrecy and so on were part of the fun of writing this book. Yeah, and, and it comes through. Uh, and again, we highly encourage our listeners, if you haven't gone out, there'll be links in the show notes and other places to to, to go and get it because it's, uh, again, it is not a dry political read. That's the thing that I want to emphasize to folks is that it has elements of uh, it has elements of characterization to it in such a way that it makes it, I think, accessible, even to folks who aren't as passionate about this topic as I think most of the people that I see on the screen here are because we're drawn to this naturally. So let's talk about this Paris Jefferson dinner party. You mentioned who some of the I think that was off podcast. You may have mentioned who some of the participants are there. Um, but just to establish, Jefferson is in Paris. The reason he's not is he's over as the minister to France, and uh, which is which is a vital role. It's not that he was not doing something important. In fact, you can argue it might have been one of the most important things that any American could be doing at that point, given the role that the French had had in the success of the American Revolution and in 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 maintaining the independence of this young republic that's even going to come under siege, you know. By 1812, it's going to come under siege. That's the way that it's going to work. Um, but also that, you know, and I'll ask you to talk about this if you would, Bo. Um, he, he's, he has succeeded Franklin. You mentioned that in your book and what that meant. So it's not like this is the first, you know, um, notable American who's been here in Paris. But what is happening is uh, what's going on in France. Again, this idea of these two revolutions that have fed off of each other to a degree. So talk a little bit about, you know, who's gathered to have dinner with Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, so, Jeff so Jefferson's, uh, Jefferson has a dinner party um, and uh, he has the dinner party in his, uh, in his, uh, in his home at the Hotel de Lajac uh, and on the Rue de Berry. And he invites four other people um, to the to the dinner. Uh, Lafayette, uh, he invites um, he invites uh, Governor Morris, uh, who happens to be uh, in Paris at the time. He invites Roche Foucault, uh, Foucault um, and he invites Condorcet. Right. So these people um, were, and he was interested, Don, in having a conversation about constitutions. Um, and, and ultimately, as we were talking about before, um, he has a particular view of what constitutions ought to do. Um, and he has a particular view about how long they can endure and so on. And so he's trying to convince people about the, the value of a written constitution, which he believed in, some of the ways in which there's uh, authority uh, distributed, which he believed in, and whether or not um, each generation ought to write its own. The reason why he invites these four people is because they're not only have expertise like Condorcet, who was an expertise mathematician, but also because they had such skill in constitutional understanding. They had studied 
state constitutions. They had, uh, a lot of them believed that what was happening in the United States in the previous two years with constitutional design and so on was the future. Um, and so he wanted to get them together because he wants to also have influence on the French Revolution. He wants to have influence on where the country goes. And one, one of the things that's ironic about all of this we talked about previously is the fact that Jefferson is an influential figure who's in neither world at the time, right? He's not in 1787. He's not in Philadelphia. And he leaves prior to the, the French Revolution and the drafting of a French constitution. So he's, his influence is significant, but he's not a player at the table at either one. <laughs> so uh, it's a fast, it must have been a fascinating dinner. It's a real dinner. And um, uh, they talked constitutions most of the night. That's um, we talked about this, I think, off podcast about the fact that uh, it was an incredible gathering of who it was for the reasons that you've just described and what was there in this. We, we talked a little bit about how enigmatic Jefferson has become, particularly in recent decades, as you know, history tends to go back and revisit and review its assessment of individuals over time. And in the last, you know, 30 to 40 years, Jefferson probably more than any of the other founding fathers has undergone a um, a revision of how he's thought of right. no one ever questioning his intellect no yeah. one ever questioning his passion just sometimes questioning i think what i've mentioned off podcast is the cognitive dissonance that just must always exist in being jefferson when you read when you read and then you see you know trying to understand but then also trying to understand a late 18th century world versus putting a 21st century optic onto it that's the other thing that's there um let me uh, uh, let me uh, let me just add one more thing that is uh, that's related to Jefferson's um, you know enigmatic uh, moment in history or, or uh, his particular position. Um, my the, my follow up uh, I'm I'm writing now a book about what I call founding edits. Right, these are the these are the the parts of founding documents that have been edited out. And what would happen, this is perfect for your podcast, what would have happened if those edits were still in place? And the most famous one, of course, which has not been written a lot about, is when Jefferson has the last of his uh, complaints that he writes in the draft Declaration of Independence is this 167 ver uh, word, very long uh, complaint uh, to King George III about slavery, right? And the section, it, it, he, goes to, he goes to tell King George III that, that King George III is a pirate for, uh, for treating uh, Africans like this and that slavery is an abomination and so on. He, he obviously presents it to the Second Continental Congress um, and uh, Georgia and South Carolina want it removed. And it's removed, right? So. Uh, Jefferson, probably bitter at the time about um, removing that section. But what if it had stayed in, right? Would we think of Jefferson quite as a, uh, as a hypocrite um, if he says all men are created equal and then he finishes the document with this, this uh, screed against uh, King George III for slavery? So Jefferson has become just a very puzzling, head-scratching, enigmatic guy 
And there are so many different ways to think about Jefferson. This constitutional uh, conversation, I'm sure he's trying to convince people about his generational idea and they're saying no. So there's just a lot about Jefferson that is <laughs> that is puzzling. Um, we try very hard, bro, to not to keep our two podcast concepts separate and we fail at it. Yeah. Horribly. Right. Because we always inside the room where it happened, want to go to the what ifs and inside of the what ifs. In fact, the reason we created the room where it happened is, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the what was there and almost, you know, the what if was so let's create a place where we can go talk about the what was, you know, and not feel bad about that. But I feel compelled here. How might that, especially with the edit concept that you just mentioned there, how if Jefferson had been able to be in Philadelphia in 1787, do you have any immediate thoughts on things that you have high confidence in that might have been different or would he have been just another influential voice around the table, but just another influential voice around the table? No, you know, I think uh, th that's a tougher one, Don, because at the end of the day, um, you know, there are figures in Philadelphia at the time like Hamilton, right? Hamilton, as much as he as much as people thought that he was kind of an ass, he has a, a significant influence um, in uh, Philadelphia in 1787. So the question is, to what extent would Jefferson have spoken up in a way that would have influenced? And my guess is uh, in 1787, Jefferson's not quite as vocal um, as he becomes later on, right? Especially when he wins the 1800 uh, election. So those major, you know, like, like Jefferson's agrarian principles, I'm not sure would have won the day because Hamilton was fighting hard against them. What would have been uh, equally interesting, and I'll, I'll let your listeners speculate on this, is what, what role would Madison have played with Jefferson? Because they were buds, right, at the time. What role would they have played in terms of trying to figure out how to maneuver the Constitutional Convention away from the Hamiltonian ideas that, that uh, for all intents and purposes, there were a fair number of them. So I think in that way, the little cabal of Virginians would have been, um, Jefferson would have had some influence, but not individually, I don't think as much as people probably think. Yeah, and of course, the way that I always think about that, I think about the, the, the original at the time of the revolution, then at the Constitutional Convention as well, you know, th this idea that the first episode of A Fork in Time was about Washington, you know, the indispensable yeah. man, yeah. is that, you know, my 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 understanding in all the time that I've ever studied this going back to grade school and then on through college was that everybody knew who that first president was going to be. It, oh, it wasn't sure. it, it wasn't hard to figure that out. And right. as a result, you know, so often I think that did frame the thoughts about what that role would be because they knew at least initially who would be in that role, you know. Then then, yeah, comes, I mean, Adam, then, then comes Adams, then comes Jefferson right. and all the things that flow out off right. of that. But, you know, that idea of, you know, who were, you know, think about the Virginia component there, Madison being a Virginian, Jefferson being a Virginian. Oh, by the way, Washington's a Virginian, too, that, we, that we're all thinking about here at the same time. And in, in the interest there, you mentioned earlier, the, you know, uh, the, the the deeper South states, the slave states versus the, the where slavery was not as prevalent. Hamilton representing financial interest, the New York interest versus the Virginia interest. You know, the very fact that it's the Virginia plan is we've got to figure out how to balance this 
population thing with the representation thing because of the articles. Yeah, I, I always again that that's where the historical what if stuff will start kicking for me is trying to figure out what would have won the day. But going back to what we talked about earlier, personality becomes an important part of this. Would there have been yeah. Would there have yeah. been some part of the Constitution that wouldn't have been because I'm just not going to be for that because Jefferson's advocating for it, you know, kind right. of thing. Right. No. Yeah. And I think uh, I think, you know, uh, one thing that was beneficial um, about the Constitutional Convention was the fact that uh, there were some players who were not there, Jefferson being one of them, um, so that people uh, didn't fully get entrenched in their ideas. It's interesting, though, Don, you know, uh, the can as much as we might find the framers of the constitution to be, you know, uh, enlightened figures to use Chris's term, they also got lucky, right? As you mentioned, everybody knew that Washington would be the first president. So article two is purposefully vague and thin, right? If you compare it to article one, article one, section seven has all of the, everything down to Congress can make postal roads and post offices, right? <laughs> really detailed stuff. But when it comes to Article Two, you know, qualifications, sure, we'll have these vague notions of executive power, but it's very short, it's very thin. And that's because Washington, everybody knew Washington would set the, the parameters for what that job was. Um, that's lucky, right? They just got lucky in that moment. Um, the other thing I'll say about uh, it, Turning, uh, turning back to Jefferson in that conversation that he had in, the, um, in, in, his, uh, in his room was, I think he also understood, Don, that he could have more influence in France at that time than he could in the U.S., right? He had kind of, you know, sure, 1776, everybody, most people knew at the time that Jefferson was the drafter of the Declaration of Independence. It's beautiful writer Adams tells him to go ahead and do it because he's a much better writer than Adams, which for Adams must have been kind of an ego, uh, a shot of, in, in his ego. But, um, but Jefferson understands between 1784 and 1789, Jefferson understands that he's got great influence in Paris. And so uh, I, I think He's uh, that's the one thing that that makes the regret of not being in Philadelphia at least palatable for him was that he knows he has great influence in Paris and he can he can make a difference like he did in 1776 in the U.S. Yeah. And I'm obliged to say it on air because I think I, I said it off air before we started uh, too much. I'm trained and studied in this area, but too much of my uh, of my American history is now framed through through. Uh, musical Broadway musical yeah. and so when you were you know obviously Hamilton being the phenomena that it's been and, and recognizing what it is there but also the other thing that comes to mind is that 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 famous um, from 1776 where the you write it you write it you write it kind of thing you know where it's 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 left to Jefferson to write it because everybody else wants to go home for a little while more than anything else is is the way it's portrayed there but 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 you're right it, to, to me the fascinating thing because again we, we've turned them in and uh, I'll, I'll conclude on this and certainly let others jump in. And uh, uh, Robert Koshy has been able to join us now. So Robert may, may pop in here in a second as well, is that what you were talking about earlier there, Bo, about, you know, for the longest period of time, these were two-dimensional sort of mm -hmm. statuary type figures. What's happened in the last, you know, half century is 
the nature of historical scholarship and other things that have come out. DNA testing, for example, now validates a rumor with respect to Jefferson that was widely known, widely suspected, but are you sure kind of thing is that, uh, you know, we think of them as being two-dimensional. That's the only word I know to describe it. There's not this, this depth. And again, the other problem that we often do is we want to assume and put 21st century optics on yeah. what they're doing. And that, that that's not who they were at the time. You know, there's no doubt. I know you'd probably agree with this, but when we will get into it in a fork in time, when we start going through some of these other, these other conventions and what that means and who's there, you know, there were no women. Yeah. But that, that, that was the nature of the day. That was not, right. you know, that was not them being exclusionary. That was just, uh, that would have been incredibly radical if you actually had. Now, having said that, you know, there were a couple of pretty influential w- women. I'm thinking of Madison's wife, Dolly oh, yeah. by name in particular. Uh, she's the she's the namesake of uh, Alexis's dog, Madison, because nah. uh, 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 Dolly Madison's her favorite first lady. If you don't think that she had influence during the time of his administration, what was going on, you don't understand what was happening, right? And that right. was, th- there were others that, I guess the the way this comes to a question is, Bo, are there others besides Jefferson that are not there that are having influence even in their absence? Je- Jefferson's not unique in this respect of his correspondence with Madison and shaping the ideals back and forth. There have to be others that aren't there that are also being influential, right? For, oh, sure. You know, uh, Adams is still influential. And, uh, you know, talking about arguably the most influential woman of the time is Abigail Adams, right? right. She's, she absolutely shapes the way that early founding period happened. The, the people I tell you, uh, Don, the people I tell you who are not at the convention who have most influence, uh, probably the most influential guy not at the convention is Montesquieu. Now, of course, he, he lived a uh, hundred years earlier, but at the end of the day, our uh, our system of separation of powers and our system, uh, you know, of of uh, checks and balances in is in large part uh, due to Montesquieu's teaching. So, the people who are most influential, like you know, it's very well known that Madison studied everything he possibly could from the ancients to Uh, those Enlightenment figures that Chris was talking about earlier. He studied all of those treatises, the John Locke's of the world, the the Aristotle's of the world, in order for him to put together the the document that we now call our Constitution. So the most influential people uh, were those that were long dead that got into Madison's head and crafted, uh, helped him craft what he's doing. But Abigail Adams, probably the most influential woman of the time. I have an interesting question, kind of building off of the entire concept here. We do look at the original founders in that two-dimensional statuary perspective. If every generation had a living experience of revising the Constitution, Mm -hmm. would that change? Would that connection to them be stronger because we had done something similar and how do you think that that process would change how we view the founders or i guess the 1787 uh, 1787 founders 
Yeah, that, uh, it's a brilliant question. Um, my, my sense, Chris, and, and you're just as qualified to answer this as, as I am, everybody on this panel is, my, uh, my sense is that on the one hand, we would reinforce what we describe as the brilliance of their ability to think about constitutional design, right? So everything from bicameral legislatures to uh, you know, life tenure fixed salaries for federal court judges because they represent those who don't have a voice in the political process, right? All of those things you'd probably say, wow, you know, they, they kind of knew what they were talking about. On the other hand, there's some real uh, clunkers of clauses in our constitution that are head scratchers uh, and not just the ones about slavery, right? So, um, so I, I think that they would both have, be reinforced in terms of their brilliance, but also uh, the warts of the constitution would, uh, would come out. And I do think if, if we sat down today in 2022 and had a constitutional convention and that we had enough time to kind of think about what it means to be in, in convention, we would revisit that moment. And a lot of the things that uh, about slavery and about, you know, Franklin owned slaves. Nobody spends any time thinking about Franklin's slaves. Um, I think a lot of this stuff would be uncovered and that uh, two-dimensional uh, quality of the founders would be uh, uglier than it currently is. So I think their, the brilliance of the design would be reinforced, but I think their personalities would get a real raking over the coals again. I think that's so, really so that begs a question. Hello, everybody. Hey, Robert. Explain my, Bo, it's very nice to meet you virtually and have you on the nice podcast. You, with the, um, again, my time's all mixed up. Um, would that have revaluation of the founders occurred sooner? Because in reality, we didn't start reevaluating them and making them yeah. non-statuary personalities for what we're saying until the latter half of the 20th century. Right. You know, they were all on a pedestal right. until then. Do you think it would have shifted where we have, and this is maybe for the whole panel, where we would have had a revisit of their moral stances, among other things, earlier in the process, if we'd have been having, having a series of constitutions? So uh, it, it's a great question. Um, I, I think there are a couple things that we that I'd throw into the mix, right? One mm -hmm. of them is the way in which uh, Lincoln rede redefines the founding. Right, especially at Gettysburg. Right, um, he he created in some ways. Uh, Lincoln, um, you know, shifted the path of American constitutional development uh, slightly to the right or to the left, depending on if if you think of him as Republican or progressive. Right. So um, Lincoln's redefinition of the Constitution uh, after the Civil War and the founders probably would have made a difference um, if we had generational constitutions. But Robert, I would say no, right? If you had a constitutional convention in 1953, I'm not sure uh, the country was prepared to think critically about the 1787 founders at that time. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a post-1960s phenomenon 
one generation removed that is willing to think much more critically. So I think that would have played out exactly the way it is now, uh, the way it has been. Uh, even if we had generational constitutions, I think it's a, a just one generation uh, thing that uh, that we're experiencing. But Bo, do you think that that was a function? I think my mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna give my answer sort of even as I ask my question, but I, I'm not convinced of it. I think part of that had to do with you know what happened in terms of political, social, social, cultural what we think of as being the 60s, you know, what was happening there. But then certainly what comes along that changes our idea about government is Watergate. And so you yeah. have you have the tremendous change of generally maybe not liking what the government is doing, but not thinking of the government as being as untrustworthy. Arguably that goes way back, but that's not new. But right. Watergate did change, it was a watershed moment in terms of, you know, American confidence in its particularly in its president, but, you know, also in its government, do you think that was inevitable or is, it, you know, would it, have, would this have happened anyway, particularly if there were the, the, the regular conventions, as Robert asked the question, would we, would we suddenly start rethinking the founders just because it's time to rethink the founders or did it take an ex, would it take an external event to make that happen? I guess is my question. Yeah. I mean, I think Watergate, uh, I think Watergate and, and other similar situations like that. Um, although I don't think there's anyone that's exactly like that, but I think Watergate, um, pulled back the curtain in ways on that, uh, that nothing has before or since, right. Certainly there was um, scandal before, but not in the visual right. way that Watergate was. Right. You know, it's, it, we're now in a, in a, in a, uh, media savvy world, right. So, I think there are, um, I think Watergate made a difference, but I'd also point to uh, things that we don't think of as a scandal as contributing to um, the cynicism of uh, politicians that dates back to, or at least shines a light on the founders. And that's things like term limits, right? We don't think of term limits in the same way we think of Watergate. One's a scandal. One's just a, a, the reality of congressional politics. But term limits, um, uh, the idea that there is no term limit for Congress members has created this environment in which uh, people have been skeptical of government or cynical of government. And, you know, politicians are just in it for themselves. And all of a sudden, every politician is fair game. And that means including the founders. So uh, I, I think there are both, uh, you know, real watershed moments in American history like Watergate and just the reality of our current situation that make the founders subject to a lot of scrutiny. The, the one thing I kind of think about when it comes to the time frame on the reevaluation of the founders, is that the main issue in which people currently criticize them mm -hmm. is as slaveholders right. declaring that all men are created equal. And while I think Lincoln, and you did a really good job in the 1863 talking mm -hmm. about him trying to live up and change the trajectory i think it's a a, a fact that it didn't take mm -hmm. that road and so i think one of the big 
reasons that we can look back on them so critically is because now society sees things differently in in a way that when you had separate but equal, okay, fine, it's not as glaring as it is to modern sensibilities. That's absolutely true. And I I think, I, I, I don't think we can ever adequately uh, estimate how much the racial reckoning of uh, the current United States influences almost everything we do in terms of political, uh, in terms of politics. So uh, whether it's uh, slaveholding, Chris, as you say, uh, these folks were, uh, they had slaves, including those that we still think as luminaries like Penn Franklin, or whether or not it's the sort of the um, intolerance of or inability to see that folks who would we, we would describe as sort of marginal characters in the late 18th century, like women, are not taken seriously, right? So uh, the fact of the matter is, um, I think it's a whole different lens with which we see history uh, after what I would describe as this notion of racial reckoning that we are currently going through. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's perfectly fine. I'm not sitting here uh, rationalizing or justifying the founders. At the end of the day, uh, most of them were racist, misogynist, um, elitist, uh, and they ought to be they ought to be uh, at least acknowledged. Uh, those realities ought to be acknowledged. So uh, I'm not troubled by it. My only, my only caveat is they also were politically uh, and constitutionally brilliant in some ways. Their design for a constitution has endured uh, since 1787, and uh, that's worthy of some recognition. Well, I agree. Oh, I may have a very strange line of thinking here, but I just want to get your opinion. And if you think it sounds a little odd, please remember I grew up in a UFO cult. So <laughs> I mean, had a lot of cataloging odd thinking as, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's normal. <laughs> so <laughs> we you brought up as... Also, any good 1776 fans, Jefferson's original edit to where he would, was going to decry slavery, it gets edited out. In the 1780s, while he's serving as minister to France, he is also dealing with the personal issue of the time of Sally Hemings and his staff that he brought with him could be applying for their freedom while in France since it had been abolished there. And it's his first experience having to pay them wages while he's in France. To the point later on in his life, I think he even wrote that I would not have been able to accomplish so much if I hadn't had slavery. Do you think that experience changed his outlook of having to go from free labor to paid labor for that span of time that it might have hardened his views. I know, again, very odd thought, just wanted to get your opinion. Oh, no, it's uh, it's fascinating, uh, Eric, it's a fascinating question. And, and again, uh, 
I would I would suggest that you know more than I do about the answer. I mean, these are these are wonderful speculative things, uh, questions. Um, I, I don't think so, right? So, at the end of the day, Jefferson had a unique mind, but he was also so politically savvy, right? And I just simply don't think that um, he he uh, he understood from a practical standpoint, you know, what he was going to do when he came back uh, to the U.S. in 1789. I think he's, I think he probably wrestled with the idea, but I don't think there's any conception uh, of, of him changing his mind about the importance of slavery for him personally uh, in that period. I, you know, did he wrestle with the moral issues? Sure, but there's no evidence to suggest that 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 would have changed the, his outlook because he didn't free his slaves, unlike uh, some of the other ones uh, that were uh, at the time. So we cannot give him credit for thinking innovatively about his relationship with slavery, regardless of with Sally Hemings. He just didn't do what some of the other founders did in terms of freeing their slaves when he died. So I, I don't think that made any uh, made any impact on his thinking. But we could we could go on for a long time here. I don't want to shut anything down, but I also want to want to help draw us to a close. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out to the panel here: Is there just any burning question that if we don't do this, you're gonna send me a nice little note off podcast and say, Don, you didn't let me ask that question. I want to make sure that I fully preclude that. So is there anything big that you think we've missed here, sort of in this introduction? And we have the benefit just reminding our listeners, Bozeman is gonna be willing to join us for a series of a fork in times where we go through these conventions, and so we'll have a chance in reflecting back. And then in those times to cover a lot of these topics and see how they evolve over time, which gives me great comfort knowing that we'll have more time to both unravel and tie things up at the same time as we work through that process. Too, so I'll, I'll open up to the panel. Is there any, any one burning question before we sort of close out this particular episode of the Rumor and App? Uh, Bo, so... Yeah. George Washington and Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin, Jesus, uh, had both met with uh, members of the Iroquois Confederacy, and that had also shaped their thinking towards constitutional government. Absolutely. To your knowledge, did Thomas Jefferson also have any influences from Native American governments that were surrounding uh, the times? Uh, I don't know that, Eric. That's a that, that's a great question, but I'll look it up. Um, and uh, my guess is that that he didn't. Uh, that would be my guess. Um, so I'm going to think no on that, but I'll get back to you. You got it. All right. Um, this was exactly what I thought it was going to be. This was not just fun. This was extra special fun. So, Bo, again, uh, appreciate you joining us and the rest of the panel here. And just to remind our listeners uh, that are listening to this on the room where it happened, although we're also going to post it on a fork in time. This is one of those things. It's the start of the new television season here in the United States, and you often see crossover episodes. So this is our version of the crossover episode uh, sort of taken to a new level because it works so well for both of our concepts. Uh, but uh, so you may have heard this for the first time. You've never listened to the room where it happened. You may be hearing this on the A Fork in Time feed. 
you, if you may be on the room where it happened going, what is this fork in time stuff they're talking about that? Although I find that's hard to believe given what I know about our listener demographics, but uh, we are going to come back and revisit at least the first four of Bo's uh, conventions, I think over time, the challenging one, whether, you know, we, we try to steal clear of modern politics, but right. this may be our one exception where we might go to what, what that last one would look like because of the backdrop that's here, because I think it's relevant to do that. But uh, the first one that we'll come back to, and you'll see this on a fork in time that'll be released pretty near the timing of this episode on the room where it happened also appearing on a fork in time is going to be that convention in 1825. And so um, I would I encourage our listeners, uh, get the book, read the book. You'll, you'll love it. You'll enjoy it. It'll help you engage and follow along with what we're doing here because we won't be able to cover everything that Bo has written on there in what we do because we'll end up chasing our typical fork in time rabbits you know, at some point here, Chris, I'll be trying to prevent a world war because that's just what I do. But uh, um, I encourage our listeners to do that. And again, we're, we're excited about this. This is sort of a new thing for us, but it's the same old thing we've been doing for a couple of years here at the same time. So uh, Alexis has been somewhat quiet. That's probably because she's been dog wrangling and husband wrangling during the uh, the bulk of this year. Mainly dogs, uh, but I am going to let her assist us here. We don't do this normally on the room where it happened, but it ties to a fork in time. Uh, what do we suggest our listeners do if they come across an interesting separation in history? What's worth doing there, Lex? They should take it. They should take it. All right. Thanks, guys.